Hi, listeners. Rachel here with an exciting announcement. We are holding a summer book club bingo game, and there is a card that you can download, a bunch of prompts for different types of books that you can choose to read to play the game along with us. All the instructions and information on how to sign up are at rachelthompson.co slash book club, where you can get your card. And you'll also be able to enter your card to win prizes throughout the summer months. So that's from May to September. We'll be running this book club bingo. I hope you will sign up and uh, read some cool books and be inspired to do some more writerly reading this summer. So all the information is at rachelthompson.co slash book club. Welcome, Luminous Writers, to the Write, Publish, and Shine podcast. I am your host, author and literary magazine editor, Rachel Thompson. This podcast explores how to write and share your brilliant writing with the world. In each episode, we delve into specifics on how to polish and prepare your writing for publication and the journey from emerging writer to published author. Hi, Luminous Writers. This is lucky number seven, the seventh episode in my series of special episodes of Write, Publish, and Shine that take you on that deeper dive into the creation of Room Magazine, issue 46.3, where I was lead editor of the issue. In this episode, I spoke with our cover artist, Amy Friend, who was also the cover artist for my very first issue that I edited for Room, which was called Mythologies of Loss. Amy Friend's art truly resonates on a deep level of nostalgia and grief with me and also because of the incredible artistry she does with photographs, turning those difficult experiences into a really joyful, beautiful thing. So clearly we're vibing even over this decade that I've been editing for Room in those themes of loss and longing. I spoke with Amy Friend about how she makes her photographs, what draws her to those themes that I myself am drawn to, and about photography as a medium inherently communicating memory, loss, and absence. Here is our conversation. So I want to start by welcoming you to the podcast, Amy Friend. It's such a pleasure to meet you, having worked with you remotely before, but it's the first time we've seen each other in what now constitutes face-to-face, <laughs> which is a Zoom call. It's wonderful to do this, actually. It's really lovely to see kind of that bookend of doing this project on two sides. So it's great. Thank you. So the cover art for our issue, which you were the creator of, is called Ebb. And it is a photo of an article of white cotton-looking clothing floating in water. It has the appearance of enough form to imply a person in the clothing, but enough not form to imply not a person in the clothing, I guess, too. It comes from the Vestiges series. I had asked if you would read your artist statement. Would you mind doing that for our listeners now? Okay, so the Vestiges series began after the death of my grandmother. And I use grandmother in my artist statement because Nona doesn't pertain as easily in the English language. And I wanted to leave it not specifically tied to me in that statement. So I chose to use grandmother in this case. But I collected several of her items, eventually choosing to photograph her nightgowns. These garments held an imprint of her body due to their use and the threadbare areas of the material. Her physical presence functioned like a film or a photograph, holding absence. The nightgowns helped me establish a portal to the ideas beyond an object or possession. 
they held a trace. Memory, history, and impermanence, the finite and the infinite flow through my work, and I'm not concerned with capturing a concrete reality. Instead, I aim to use photography as a medium that offers the possibility of exploring what lies beyond the visual. Thank you. Yeah, I think that just says so much about why we picked the piece, even though it's like not like you presented the artist statement with the images, but it was sort of this intuitive experience that my assistant editor, Ellen Chang Richardson, and I had when we were looking at possible cover pieces. And what I love is how you talk about what lies beyond the visual. And what I want to know is what else for you lies beyond the visual in this series? Well, for me, the series, really thinking about the materials that I used in the series were more, like I said, a portal, a conduit, really, to be able to not grapple with so much, but just take a moment to ponder what anything that we see really means. And of course, photography is that removal from reality into a different form of solidity of reality that is tricky because it's both present and absent and it's showing us something, but it's also not showing us, you know, what's actually in a sense real anymore, because even if the object still exists, the way you were 10 minutes ago is changed. So I love the complexity of photography in the sense that it provides this visual base, but it's asking for so much more than what it's providing in the senses, the visual senses. So for this series, I personally went through all kinds of materials that belonged to my grandmother because she was grew up during the Depression. And so many of us have been able to feel that collection of our elders with all of their belongings because they were worried about not having anything. And so she had saved these nightgowns that were just completely threadbare. So you could tell where her breasts had kind of moved against the fabric and, you know, which side she slept on more than the other. And they were just so reminiscent of film. It was like there was a direct connection to the idea of film leaves this trace, but it's not there. So I felt that the nightgowns were very much like a film photography, even though they're so dramatically different in their tactile qualities. And I initially had tried to photograph those flat and they look like something out of a, like a horror movie prop. So <laughs> they weren't quite working. But that beyond the visual is to think about what is solid and what isn't. Some of the pieces in the series, the Ebb piece that you described, is actually in her bed sheet. So that was when she died. She had slept in that bedding for the last time. She didn't die in the bedding, but she slept in that bedding. And so I asked my mother if she would mind if we brought it to the lake, which is right close to our house, to wash it. Because it felt very strange to just peel it off and throw it in a washing machine and be done with it. There felt like there was something further in that. So that idea of what's in the beyond of the visual, I think, are all the stories. And that's what a photograph does. And so nobody would know all of those details if I didn't share them. And I love the secrets of photography. So the kind of what's beyond the visual are just tons of wonder and secret. I love that. So was that then the first piece from Vestiges? Like the idea that you had of washing that sheet led to the series or had you already been putting objects in water at that point? The nightgowns are not in water, only the sheets. So the nightgowns, it actually came after. So we just left the bed. We didn't really know what to do. You know, you kind of take a little bit of time and 
it's their space. It's this person's space. And she lived with us. So it was very, uh, lived with me since I was six. So it was a very special remembrance of her, like just her sweetness, her sweet presence. And so we left the bed for a while and I started working with these nightgowns. And those nightgowns were literally in like a crappy old plastic bag. And she obviously had no good intention for them, but she wouldn't get rid of them. So that idea of all the sleep that had taken place was obviously aligned with the idea of death, that kind of big sleep. But then thinking about the sheets as an extension of that sleep, but also the waking, right? This change. And so I felt that there was some essence in those sheets that were aligned with the work. And she had no affinity for water, but I did. (laughs) And so when I brought these sheets to the water with my mom, it was actually really a funny moment. And again, those secrets. There was a couple of fishermen who were waiting with their kind of fishing gear on in, in the lake. And they were staring at us wondering what the heck we were doing. And then it started to rain a little bit. So my mother and I, I have camera. My mother has an umbrella over me like it matters. I'm like four feet deep in water. It was just this really sweet, gentle moment of letting these sheets kind of flow and, and ebb, right? That, that life that comes in and goes out. It felt like just a strange little ritual that needed to happen. In a way, for me, those photographs are a record of a performance, but a private performance, although we did have fishermen witnesses. So they were wonderful. They didn't know what they were witnessing. (laughs) Now I want to ask you, though, because we published a couple other of the series inside the journal, and one of them is like a smallish nightgown. And I thought that was in water as well. So there's something I think about how you've achieved the movement outside of the water. It looks very watery somehow, too. So I was really trying to structure what I wanted the nightgowns. I go through this all the time when I'm making work. I'm, I always think I know what I'm doing, like I'll structure it this way and it never works, never, but I have to start that way. And I laugh because it seems to all fall apart from that point in, but the falling apart is what helps me. So I thought I'll lay these out on a light table and I'll photograph them so I can see that threadbare area. That's when the kind of horror-esque movie results came through and I thought, no, this isn't right. I want them to feel as both solid and delicate as they were. And so I built a giant frame for them and I would throw them. And the light, of course, was lighting behind the frame. And I would throw the nightgowns and you would think, oh, she's capturing them in the air, but no, they would land. And so I had no control over how they landed, which became really important because I was trying to control something that I couldn't control is presence. I was trying to shape the presence in the way that I thought it should be. And I realized that you can't control any of this. And in addition to, you know, how long does someone live? You can try to control that. Where does their story end? I mean, she would have probably been like, really, you're using my nightgowns? Like, seriously? (laughs) But she was always so very generous in understanding that I was, you know, working in the arts and would cooperate in, in any way whatsoever. So it was really lovely. I have a wonderful photo of her. One of my first photos when I was in my undergrad and I said, will you just go stand in your field? So she lived in a house. We used to farm the back of the house, just a very small little field to farm. 
and just hold your arms up. And she was probably in her 80s at that time. And I forgot to load the camera with film. And so I was taking pictures of nothing. <laughs> and so, of course, being me, I, I made her do it again, which she was not really happy about. But it made the photos better because she was less guarded because she's just like, let's get this over with. <laughs> but they're lovely photos. And so, you know, that idea of control, I think, has always been something I push and pull with in the way I work. I love that because it speaks to me as a writer as well, too. The idea of art requiring us to kind of follow the scent of the story is one of my mentors used to say. And it's like the idea of just letting go of that control and letting the story lead you. So very cool. You touched on this a bit, and I wondered if you had anything more to say about the idea of photography suiting those ideas of memory, history, and impermanence. Can you say any more about that? I mean, if you get into photo theory, they have tons to say about that. But I think photography is just a strange little thing. It's full of wonder and magic and possibility. And I think that's akin to the way we think about life, think about what we do and don't know, that control factor. We're trying to understand something that's completely ridiculous <laughs> in all its facets to try and think, I understand. No, we, we don't understand. We just think we do. And a photograph does that as well, very much in the sense that it provides us with this solid base to think through. But in its solidity, there's nothing there. And so that idea of memory and loss and absence is, it's just inherent to the medium for me. I know other people are like, oh, photography and loss, you know, no, let's not talk about that anymore. And I think it's such a disservice to the medium because it's almost ignoring everything that it is. And that's why, you know, when I'm working, you know, there's these threads that keep pulling you into the same spaces for me, it's the medium. It it aligns with that so specifically that I, I can't escape it. <laughs> now I'm thinking about the medium that we used of the lip mag and the fact that it actually was 10 years. Yeah, it was 10 years ago when we first worked on the, the other issue. I'm just saying that and then I'm doubting myself because it seems so implausible, but it is true. And I had asked you to place art from another series, Dare a la Luce. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly for the cover of our Mythologies of Loss issue. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Dare alla luce. Thank you. It really struck me. I actually found it on a blog called The Jealous Curator, I think is where I first encountered it. And you use this arresting technique of poking holes in archive photos to literally let the light in. And maybe I'll just mention part of why I picked that is I felt like it really called to mind the poet Rumi's line, the wound is the place where the light enters you which, you know, people may also recognize from Leonard Cohen's song Anthem. That's how the light gets in. I'm wondering if we could throw back to that series. So what was your intention with this series? And maybe talk a bit about picking archive photos, which, I mean, it's very aligns with what you're saying about photography, but then also in that case, you're choosing others' photos for that. The Dariana Luce series, it started actually back to Nona, so back to my grandmother. I mean, we lived together for most of our life and she had never shown me these specific photos. And one day, maybe was 16 or 17, she comes up with this album of photos that were probably ranging from maybe a few years after she'd left Italy. So 
She left Italy around the early 1900s. And she couldn't remember some of the names of her very dear friends. She remembered a lot of stories and people's names, but there were some that she just couldn't place. I mean, she didn't put great effort into it. She wanted to just look at, I know you're interested in photography, so here's this book. And kind of a very gruff but gentle Italian grandmother way, like, here you go. This might interest you. Knowing it was quite precious to her. And so I thought about that for a long time. And a lot of my work is revolved around familial stories and my personal experience growing up with family who were always telling stories. Uh, we all grew up on one street. It was kind of nuts. Like my grandparents, my mom's brother and us were all together, three houses in a row on a dead end street. And so it was just like one giant house. So I sat with that experience of her telling me these stories that I'd never known about her. And it revealed something so different that when I wanted to work with them eventually, many years later, I couldn't. It's actually about the loss. So going back to that idea of what is photography, it's just a whole lot of loss because I can't tell those stories the way she did. The voice is gone for those. And it already was. So it's you know, kind of like playing telephone. You've lost something through the translation and time. And so I decided to try and work with photographs that I had no connection to. So that's where I started going and searching around for images. But what I ended up doing, which I didn't realize I was doing until I had amassed a number of photos, was I was just buying photos that reminded me of my life <laughs> or people I had known. And so I felt like I was creating this type of fabricated photo album of things that I may have remembered or stories or people I could imagine I have known. And of course, I did go sideways sometimes through the collecting because there's some images that are just so enticing that you can't resist but work with them. Initially, I had planned on selling on them because I felt like people were just selling them for a dollar here or there. And that, that preciousness that I had experienced with my grandmother was just gone. It was like, what can I make from these? And it was no longer about the photograph. It was about the money. And so I thought I'm going to embroider on them. And so I did. I started embroidering on them and I kept working and working. And I was like, okay, this is all right. But something again, didn't sit right. So it was that I, I know I, something's not happening here. And the irony of how I discovered what to do always makes me laugh because it's usually by accident. So most of what I do is by accident. I was watching my husband play baseball and it's so incredibly boring to me, even though I do like sports, but just after a while, it's like hit the ball, just get it over with. And so I'm this crazy person in a stand sewing on photos. <laughs> you know, all these baseball people are watching me. And I'm like, yeah, I know. And he would get up to bat and I was holding up the photo to try and find new holes and the sunlight was coming through at that moment. And I was like, I found what I need to do. I don't even have to sew anymore. It was great. I just need to poke holes. And it made so much sense to me. The embroidery was doing nothing for what I was aiming for. It was making them tactile. It was making them something other than what they were, which is what I wanted to do, but it wasn't reaching my goal. So I started intentionally working with the light and it made so much sense because I often reference photography in my work, even if it's in there in subtle ways, like 
the film quality of the nightgowns is one, the vestiges series. And then in this one, it's thinking about the first photo that I worked with was a baptismal photo. I remember that one. Yeah. And I had used a scripture passage. What is done in the darkness will be brought to the light, which is in the Bible. And I was raised quite religious. I'm, I'm not religious myself, but I was raised that way. And so I found an irony to the, the phrase, a sweetness to people who have that belief system, but also to the fact that photography does bring something to the light. And then, of course, being a little facetious, thinking about the dark room as a place that brings things to the light and only with light. And also about photography being a complete lie, like there's so many lies in it. So that, you know, what is done in the darkness will be brought to the light. And it's just kind of an, you know, oppositional twist to what we really understand. So that was the first photo. And it really was ironic that I ended up working on that one because I discovered a lot through collecting. And it's this preciousness that people have, but for certain genres of photography and they become collected. And so I became fascinated by the throwaways. You know, what do you throw away and why are baptismal lake photos like highly collectible images? It's bizarre. They are highly collectible images somehow? Oh, if you go on eBay, people are bidding hundreds okay. of dollars for that. them. Yeah. <laughs> so a sideways project that I don't know when I'll ever get to it was through the act of collecting, I really started to understand this new dialogue that was happening in the way that we define photography as non-practitioners or non-academics or, you know, people who just know maybe something about it, but not a lot. They've created subsets of genres and, and, you know, obviously to catch the buyer looking for those types of images. So the internet has created these definitions. And there's some that I took screenshots of I mean, they're awful in some ways, but they're really funny in other ways. You know, the descriptions to get people to buy them. So people are creating these ridiculous stories on eBay, like pointy-breasted alien family, you know, just like the most ridiculous descriptions. And so I started taking screenshots because in a way it's horrible. You're, you're describing this family portrait in this really awful way, but that becomes their signature seller catchphrases. And so... I started to screenshot these. So I have collections of thousands of them, of images I never bought, but came across and just thought, okay, there's the young women photographs, right? There's the pretty young women photographs. And so there's now there's genres of beauty defined by sellers. It's really fascinating. I feel like I'm getting a sense of your work as an archivist somehow too. It's like you're collecting these ideas out there and that maybe the photos themselves are part of that collection, I guess. I'm scratching the surface here, I think, of what, I, <laughs> what I'm noticing. I mean, it's been sitting there for years because there's so much to unpack. I'm always interested in the archive, even the nightgowns to me. They are a little collected archive of sleep. I mean, if we wanted to analyze my grandmother's patterns of sleep, we probably could just through those nightgowns. <laughs> and then through the Daniela Luce pieces, you know, I started to realize what was missing because they're highly collectible. So African-American photographs, family photographs, you know, there's specific collectors and even museums collecting those. So I stayed away from them most of the time because 
whoever's collecting these, I think could do more with them as a collection that I could as a singular image. So I have one or two images that I purchased, again, reminding me of people in my life, but I noted big absences. And that actually led to another series of what we don't have in our photo albums. It's not a series that's finished, but it's thinking about all the images that are missing. I'm pausing this conversation with Amy Friend to remind you that in addition to this podcast, I also send out writerly love letters each week filled with motivation and ideas for you, dear writers. That's it. That's all. You can subscribe to my letters at rachelthompson.co slash letters. Now back to my conversation with Amy Friend. I've underlined the fact that I was drawn to your work a decade ago. And then when we came to this issue again, which to me is a lot of a mirror of the issue that was Mythologies of Loss, the first one. And now this is like ghosts, which feels like somehow there's some kind of continuum and it's a progression of the first idea of Mythologies of Loss or as an echo of it, at least. And clearly, you know, even hearing you now, too, I just know that we're vibing in the parlance of the day here in terms of what you explore in your art and what I wanted to explore in each case in these issues of Room, themes of loss and longing. I think you have touched on this a bit, but can I draw you out to talk a bit more about why you're drawn to those themes? You know, it's funny. I think about a lot of it goes back to the way I grew up and we had a lot of people leave our world in the family when I was quite young and, you know, being, we're actually Italian, Scottish and Austrian, (laughs) but once you have Italian, they kind of cancel out the other, (laughs) the other backgrounds, like, no, you're Italian, forget about the rest. So funerals were very dramatic. They would eventually lead to discussions about other people who had died. And so as a kid, I always found it kind of fascinating and I didn't really understand it in the, you know, real grief kind of way because people were distanced from me. I was too young. But I also always heard these ideas of leaving their homeland and what they miss. And we lived in a very, I would say, immigrant populated neighborhood. So that sentiment was, I delivered newspapers. So I would even meet all these people through the neighborhood and they would all have their little things that they did or, you know, stories that they would tell you, you know, as elderly people with a young kid coming to their door. I mean, it was a different time. They would chat away and I was always fascinated by what they would have to say. But a lot of it was this nostalgia. And so I think that sat with me. And I also grew up, you know, is a dead end street with farmland around us. And so as kids, you know, we were always just outside farming and watching what my grandparents would do. And then at the other end of the street was the lake where I washed the sheets in. And so I always felt like we were in this little weird pocket that was full of these stories, but all of them had this thread of sadness to them and joy. But within all of that was this sense of grief and loss and storytelling. And so it's really taken me a long time to understand the push and pull I have with it, because I try not to make it all about me. And yet, there's so many stories that I think lead into the way I work. You're bringing me back to that time when (laughs) you'd stop in on the way home from school at some older neighbor's place and (laughs) just hang out. And that was like, considered very, very natural. No, thank you for sharing that. That's really interesting to hear where those themes come from. 
I've been asking all the writers and one other visual artist I've spoken to about what is haunting them presently in their art, even if it's not about ghosts necessarily and loss. I think we are kind of haunted by ideas. So what is haunting you at present in your art? One of the things that I've definitely realized and, you know, being kind of locked in with COVID for so long, you know, there's just that great pause. And when I was able to pause that forced pause, I realized how much I revisit old work in a way that maybe some artists do it, but I do it in a way where I'll stop for years. Like I didn't make any pieces in Daniela Lucci. I was still collecting because I think I'm a bit of an addicted collector now. I can't help myself. And I don't know what I'll do with those images. And every once in a while, a Daniela Lucci piece will come out of them. But it's like I'm not finished those conversations with that work. So these conversations, they keep going back and forth. So the way I work in the studio is I'll have a lot of things. And you mentioned the word archives. I feel like they're little archives. Sometimes they're collected and they're my own and sometimes they're found. So I've been working between a few different projects. One of them was a bunch of letters that I found again with my grandmother, these letters that had been written between Italy and Canada over the course of the early 1920s, right until the 80s. And they continued on, but as people died, there were fewer and fewer letters. And so I worked to have some of them translated and they were really interesting. They talked about very specific locations in Northern Italy. And so I started reaching out to some of our relatives that we still have there and asked them if they knew where the pear tree is behind the cornfield near this little tiny town. Yes, we still get pears there. And so I'm working on a project that's related to this idea of land and memory, because so many of us during COVID started to recognize our gardens again and the changes of season where they had just kind of fallen off the radar for a lot of people. So I'm interested in that letter writing. And also my husband is from Cuba. And so when he first came to Canada, there was no real access to internet. There still really isn't in Cuba, but so he would get these letters and they would talk about the weather or, you know, the smell of the harvest or something quite specific that would bring him back to that kind of locative geography of home. And so Again, trying to not make it like I know and understand these stories. I just wanted to think about how a photograph can speak to that loss, but also to the presence of those places still. So I'm I'm working on that. And that one has been a long haunt because it started before COVID and then I paused. And then during COVID, I started looking at my own photographs that I had taken over the years, again, being landlocked. And I love the water. So I I have hundreds of photographs of waterscapes, like just oh, water. They're all the same. They're all beautiful. And so I started just putting them into a file, not knowing what I would do. And there's these weird things you do in life that you're like, I have no idea why I've been collecting seawater every time I travel, but now I understand. So I've been soaking these photographs. I printed them and soaked them in the seawater and the salt would dry on the surface and create this kind of crystalline texture to the photos. And so I was thinking about those letters about loss and home and our body and tears and, you know, we're made of salt and water. So I started making my own 
body sees. So mixing what would be the average amount of salt in our bodies with tap water (laughs) and thinking about that sterilization of our connection to everything and trying to remake it. We really are just little oceans. And so I'm still really trying to work on that, but it's not so easy to get access to seawater when you're (laughs) surrounded by the Great Lakes. Oh, yes. (laughs) When I travel, I do it. But the one, to answer your question more specifically, there's a project that I have no idea what it'll be, but it has been really driving me crazy. I know it's there. And it's just about wonder. It's just wonder. And trying not to package everything up in these neat little ways that art is often like, here's a series, now it's done. Here, It's what about all of it, the big mess of it all, the wonder of everything. I have this bric-a-brac everywhere, like little crystals and prisms that reflect light and old mirrors that I know someone must have looked at a thousand times. And so there's all of these things that come together and I'm trying to figure out what they will become. That's the haunting right now is weird items for the purpose of wonder. (laughs) And I hear that letting go of control where it's like, I'm just going to see what this is. I'm not going to define it before. I get there. Exactly. Exactly. But again, it feels like a strange, maybe cabinet of curiosity could be the way to define it. But I still feel it's like a bit of an archive. Like if you were to tell someone a hundred years ago, package me up something that just creates wonder, what would they package up? Right. So I think it's quite different than now, or maybe not. Maybe I'm totally wrong. Yeah. You have me wondering. (laughs) So this is already, it's already working. (laughs) (laughs) Well, kids will do that to you too. I often don't talk about being a mom and being an artist, but you can't help but have that kid stuff seep into you (laughs) because you get so sidetracked in this making and you know, there's this wonder going on in the making anyways. But then, you know, I see my daughter making her own wolf pheromone because she thinks she's a wolf and spraying the yard with it. And that's like pure poetry. You know, it's pure wonder. Will this pheromone work? I don't know. (laughs) I love that influence. So I have five questions that I ask every guest. It's called the quick lit round. It's a fill in the blank thing. (laughs) And I've been modified it for visual artists, but I usually ask about being a writer. So the first statement is being an artist is. I think you create the riddle. And then you have to figure it out or you create a question that needs a solution. Whether you ever find the solution is all other discussion, but I think it's problem solving. And judging from our conversation too, sometimes it's like the solution is different than maybe anticipated at the start as well too. I really do come across most of my end results through trial and error or accident or really a play. So that's huge for me is the idea of play and the underestimation of the seriousness of play. So that's really important in my work. When I'm really in the middle actually of a project and it's feeling like too sterilized because I know what I'm going to do, I'll take something else out and, and then I feel like I can go back to what I'm doing with a little more freshness. My next fill in the blank is Literary magazines are? Full of inspiration. (laughs) I love the way that a word can take you 
a thousand different ways. And I love the way if you pick it up a second time and read something that intrigued you, how it changes. And so for me, seeing what people are writing in the now is almost like a conversation that is happening from outer space. There's these waves, you don't know when they're going to hit you, but they're happening, right? Because us having this podcast right now, I know I'm going to be thinking about some of the things I said later and that opportunity to have dialogue, even if there's no answer, there's a dialogue. And so I would say that it is about inspiration, but dialogue is what's happening. I love that. That's probably closest to my fill in the blank there, that they are conversations. So editing requires, and I think I would extrapolate that to like, I guess, curation or thinking that kind of sober second thought, the revision process of art. Losing your ego, (laughs) losing ego for sure. And opening up possibility. I love when someone else sees something in my work that I haven't seen. Even if I don't like what they're seeing, I still love the fact that they've seen something different. And I really enjoy stepping back a little bit when I'm making selections to see what people are maybe pulling in different ways. And or more specifically, if a work is being curated for a show, why they would align me with certain artists or why they would want to show the work with different artists. And and I really enjoy seeing my response, but also learning from what I see. Because I learn every time I see work installed. It could be, oh, I wouldn't have done it that way. So what? Right. So it's both that learning from it and being open enough to allow the work to be something less controlled. So I love that part of it. This is somewhat related I guess when you're thinking about being selected for shows, but rejection for an artist means, or like a no. A no, a little bit of swearing. And I think, I know, let me just think my last no, because I get a lot of them. We all do. I think it does go back to that. It's about wondering why, but in a good way. You know, you're like, oh, darn, because a lot of the time it, it is so, there's so much work involved to submit, but you have to just keep making and doing. But I do think there are times where you think, yeah, okay, (laughs) didn't really fit there, did it? But yeah, it is about learning why. And I also really love following up on, let's say I've applied to something and then I get to see the selection, which isn't always the case, but I get to see the selection. I learned from that. You know, I learn a lot from that because they're also trying to do something from their perspective. I could apply to the same thing the next year it fits because of the amount of artists or whoever's come forward. And so I I enjoy seeing those differences. Wonderful. And then the last fill in the blank is artistic community is. They're like a weird little family. (laughs) Yeah, they are full of fascinating ways of seeing the world. They're supportive. They push you. They let you know that you're not a singular creator. So get off the pedestal and work with us. I love that. But I also love the camaraderie. So important. That's wonderful. Yeah, I wasn't sure. So I'm kind of feeling the overlap in writing community as well, too, with some of the things that you said. So that's brilliant. I mean, any community is, 
you know, really when you come together, there's just all kinds of wonderful personalities. We are so different in our ways of thinking and being creative is, I mean, my husband and I have had some pretty funny conversations because he grew up, you know, very traditional arts where a skill is what makes art art. So he says, photography is not art. And I'm like, oh, really? Well, I'm going to go show in Paris next week. So you can just stay home. Okay. (laughs) But he's created some impromptu conceptual pieces of art over discussions and actually they're quite good. (laughs) So yeah, the personalities are just a wild and fun way of shaking up what you think you understand about being in an artistic practice. Well, thank you so much for sharing and collaborating unbeknownst to you, I guess, with me over this long period of time in these two issues. That's just been really lovely that you've said yes every time we asked if we can publish your work and and that you're producing such work that we feel deeply when we look at it too. So I would argue with your husband that it's definitely an art. (laughs) You're like, why did you say that? But it's true. We have these funny conversations. And I love that because, you know, you really start to wonder, well, why does that qualify and this doesn't? You know, I don't work in a traditional way photographically. I'm not always out there shooting reality. So I kind of love that I might feel that there's always something missing in the photo. Like I always talk about photography's failure. I'm always needing to do something else to it because something in it is failing me. So it's the failure that I love. I'm like, okay, something's not working here. So what is it about what photography can provide and then what it can't provide? But no, it's been wonderful to work together and to see the the work in a place where all of these words also frame it so wonderfully. So it's, it's great. Thank you. Yeah, I feel like the art is definitely in conversation with the writing that we publish in the issue as well, too. So that has been really joyful for me as an editor and the person that is curating, in a sense, this uh, collection together. So thank you so much, Amy. Thanks for sharing your thoughts with me today. Thanks. So that was my conversation with Amy Friend, the cover artist for Room 46.3 Ghosts with a gorgeous and intriguing image that we've now uncovered exactly how it was created and what it is even because it's not exactly apparent when you look at it and that's part of the mystery that we've actually debunked a little bit in this episode or we've dug into the mystery of how those pieces were created. I really appreciated hearing about her artistic process and discovery and you heard me reference writing instructor Betsy Worland's sage advice to follow the scent of the story in reflection of how Amy Friend approaches her art, I love hearing how she followed the scent of the art and loses control and lets things just get created through her own ability to let things go and discover things. So as Amy Friend put it, falling apart is what helps me, which I think is helpful advice for all creatives. And I'm particularly thinking of you, dear writers. So in fact, This week, I'm teaching my revision love course, and I passed along that same idea that in revision, you can break things apart and put them back together, and that you can allow it to fall apart first, so you know what the work is about and what exactly it is you were trying to say or what additionally you could say in your work. And I think that is a way to kind of get deeper into the themes and ideas that you're communicating in your writing 
It takes, of course, a lot of trust in the process of creating, which clearly Amy Friend has as she's throwing sheets into water and nightgowns into the air to see where they land. So I hope you enjoyed that delve into the world of a different artistic practice. And of course, one that we intersect with a lot when we publish literary magazines, because most lit mags have cover art, and I, for one, adored learning about the magic and possibility that Amy Friend sees in photos, which is akin to how we think about life, trying to understand something completely ridiculous, as she put it. The Right Publish and Shine podcast is brought to you by me, Rachel Thompson. Sound editing is by Adam Linder. Transcripts by Dia Jaffrey. Thanks also for production support from Melly Walker, who is also the community facilitator for all of my writing courses. You can learn more about how I help writers write Publish and Shine at rachelthompson.co. And when you're there, sign up for my writerly love letters. I send them every week and they're filled with support for your writing practice. If this episode encouraged you to let things fall apart in your writing and let go of some control to get to deeper artistry, I would love to hear all about it. You can always email me at hello at rachelthompson.co. I'm now also posting on Instagram. You can follow me there at rachelthompsonauthor. Just note, I'm doing social my way, which means I don't do comments or DMs. So email is still the only way to reach me if you want to engage. And you can do so at hello at rachelthompson.co. Thank you to all of you who've been sharing the podcast with other writers. I really appreciate you for sending writers to rachelthompson.co slash podcast or telling them to search for Write, Publish, and Shine wherever they get their podcasts. And thank you for listening. I encourage you to let go of a bit of control and see what happens when things fall apart and you put them back together, dear writers. Amy Friend spoke to me from St. Catharines, the traditional territory of the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe peoples. And I am a guest in the South Sinai on lands of the El Musina Bedouin. Join our game of book club bingo this summer. Learn more and sign up at rachelthompson.co slash book club.